This is the Jets-centric podcast, your home for Winnipeg Jets, talk, thoughts, and takes. Hey there, Jets fans. Welcome back to episode 24 of the Jets-centric podcast. Uh, it is Alistair Moat interviewing Mike McCurdy, who you might know online as Ineffective Math. Really smart guy. He takes a look into um, the, the fancy stats and makes them simple for people like me who don't really get it. Um, some of you may remember him. He did a talk last year at the University of Winnipeg, and uh, that was a lot of fun to go check out. So anyhow, he's at the top of his game. This is his full-time gig you know, uh, uh, studying analytics and, and hockey stats. So uh, he knows quite a bit. So if you want to learn a bit, definitely keep listening and tell everyone you know about this, especially those who doubt their value or don't understand them is probably more likely the case. So anyhow, uh, check it out and uh, thanks for listening. Hello, Jets fans. Welcome back to another episode of the Jet-Centric Podcast. This is Alistair Mowat. I'll be your host for the evening, and I'm joined by Micah McCurdy of uh, Ineffective Math at Twitter.com, also HockeyViz.com. Micah, thanks for joining us. Not at all. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's absolutely entirely my pleasure, I'm sure. Uh, all right, so... Uh, you have a reputation as uh, something of a stat guru uh, in the Twitter community. Uh, so I just thought I'd ask, first of all, uh, in your mind, what are fancy stats or advanced stats? So it depends a lot on who you talk to. The advanced is is perfectly relative thing. And, mm-hmm. and maybe for one person, something might be extremely sophisticated. And for another person, it might be very simple. Um, and I... I think a lot of what gets lumped under fancy stats is is not really fancy, although some of it is fancy. It really just means um, unfamiliar, something new, something unusual, um, something that you don't see on broadcasts. So some of that is is legitimately legitimately very simple. You know, it's something as simple as as scoring rates instead of scoring counts. You know, I don't think that really counts as fancy, but in some sense, that's still very unusual to say. You know, oh, so and so scores this many points per minute. You don't get that on broadcasts like you should. And people prefer to just say, oh, he has 14 points or 15, and, you know, without paying any attention to whether or not he's getting a lot of opportunity or hardly any opportunity. Um, but then, of course, you have you have things which are legitimately sophisticated, things like um, complicated regression models for teasing apart exactly who is affecting whom. And uh, war models, for instance, are even more sophisticated than that. And so there are there are legitimate fancy stats that are actually fancy. But but there's a kind of culture war aspect where anything which is done by a certain group of people just gets lumped into one category. Um, and I understand why people do that, but I think it, it doesn't really, I mean, it has a social meaning, but it doesn't have any particular meaning for hockey. No, I absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think for the purposes of this podcast, I, I'll, I'll keep using the terms fancy stats just because that might be what our audience is more familiar with. But, uh, Fair enough. I, have, I absolutely get what you're saying though. Um, so, as someone who does 
pay a lot of attention, obviously, to these fancy stats, these more advanced uh, ways of analyzing the game. Uh, how do looking at stats or, or your your data visualizations, uh, how do they affect the fan experience? Now, it depends on what kind of fan you are. There's definitely there's definitely a fan for whom the that kind of statistical work presents very little benefit, and I think those fans and I have nothing to say to one another, and so we just sort of cheer when we feel when we meet each other at games. You know, where whereas there's a lot of other people though who really want to know, they want to know which parts of the game that they're watching are are skill because they want to know exact everything they can about the players that they love. They want to know which which things that players are doing are really uh, things that they're driving by being good hockey players and which are things that are just luck. And that's that's been a central concern of analytics types for, I mean, for more than a few decades now. Mm-hmm. So that's still a big motivating question for everybody. And so for lots of fans, um, so for me personally, I find that I enjoy watching the sport more when I know just how unlikely things are too. So that's a measurement of, you know, if you think a team – if you think every game is 50-50, then in some sense, you no outcome is ever surprising to you. And you never, right? There's nothing, you cannot possibly be shocked ever. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so if you want to, to be excited in that way, other than just by the pure like, oh, look at them skate so fast kind of excitement, you want to be excited in the sense of, of being surprised by the outcome, you have to have a strong sense of what is likely to happen. And that's, strictly speaking, a technical question that I think should be answered by people with with models that are good. They don't have to be sophisticated, but they do have to be decent. And that's part Mm -hmm. of what I really like as a fan, is that if my team is going to, like, if I know that my team is legitimately a a one in 10 chance to win a game, hideous, hideous underdogs, then that makes that one every 10 times that they win that game, that makes that extra sweet, because I know that they were terrible underdogs. You know, and so you need to have that measurement ahead of time to, to feel that. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it really raises the stakes, doesn't it? Yeah. In fact, it makes you. It tells you what the stakes are. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Good point. Uh, okay. So uh, you brought up uh, the topic of uh, models there. Uh, would you mind telling our audience a little bit about what your model in particular does and how it does it? Sure. So the first thing to understand about models is that everybody has them. They just aren't always mathematical models. Everybody has a mental model of of all kinds of stuff that's going on. You know, every time you see a chance in front of goal and you think, oh, what a great chance that was. He really should have scored that. You know, that's, that's your own brain telling you from your own experience, you know, what the chance of that, of that play was to turn into a goal, i.e. very high, even though it didn't in that particular case. And so you're mm-hmm. making, so there's a, there's a modeling aspect there, and that's done purely on psychology and with experience. And then you can, I mean, there's no reason not to use those things, but you can also use, um, statistics and mathematics to accomplish the same goals, which is to make, take the same measurements. So I have, I have a whole host of models for, you know, the same way that, that somebody who likes to do aerodynamics would have a whole bunch of different models for wind tunnel um, projects for different things that they were building. I have, I don't know, 10 or 20 or some such now for various things. And some of them are, are cheap little toys and some of them are sophisticated. And the most important one is, um, is one for modeling um, how many shots I expect different teams will get. So if you have these players and you have those players and they play against one another, uh, how good is that team at generating shots? How good is that team at suppressing shots? And so when you put them together, what kind of results do you expect? And then after that, there are less uh, well-developed models about how, you know, are these people, 
does this team have better goaltenders? Does this team have better shooters? Does this team draw penalties, take penalties? And so I have models for all of those things. And all of them get thrown into a big, big bag where you can model uh, how likely is it that this team is going to win a game, which is a, a more interesting, more directly interesting question. And you have those sub pieces. And once you assemble them, you can start asking questions like that. Cool. Awesome. Um, so since your your various models uh, are tra tracking all this data, um, I'm just curious, uh, for those who haven't visited your site before, what would you say uh, is the biggest draw for your particular website? So the thing that, that I find really brings people back and that, that, I, that is quickest to engage them is maps of where shots come from under certain circumstances. So you can look at, at the Jets, for instance, and say, well, where are they taking their shots at five on five? And so this year, um, the Jets have a really interesting pattern of shots where, uh, on the one hand, they're, they're generating lots of shots from certain areas. So in particular, in the, the middle to high slot, the Jets generate lots and lots of shots, which is great. That's a great place to take a lot of shots from. Um, and lots from the right point, which is mostly Dustin Bufflin. That, but very, very few from right in front of the net which is bad because that's a great place to generate shots from too, and they're not getting shots from there, not relative to the league. And so those, those charts would say, you know, and then of course there are sub charts which say something like, well, how many shots are they getting when Bufflin is on the ice? Or what about when Bufflin is not on the ice, but Lina is? Or, you know, or what about at five on five? Or what about at five on four? Or what about, and you can go through all of those permutations. And so I have a whole host of, of charts that all show the same, thing just in different circumstances and uh and so shots are really the foundation of, of what makes the game tick you know there's all sorts of things which are interesting puck battles of a thousand types passing etc but really you know if you're generating lots of shots that's the foundation of whether or not you're going to be able to succeed and so that's the angle that most people um come into the website on first and uh, and then they find whatever else there is to find which is there's a fair bit of but doesn't uh, catch the attention quite the same way. Oh, absolutely. Um, I know, like the, the visualizations are certainly what I'm most drawn by personally. Uh, and I know for me, being able to see the data represented visually can often mean something very different from seeing a spreadsheet full of numbers. Um, so I'd like to ask you, has, has all of your work with all these various ways of visualizing your data uh, changed the way you think about the game? For me, it's more the other way around. I, I, I didn't change my way of thinking because of visualizations. I operated through visualizations because of the way I think. The like I had, in some sense, I had no choice but to visualize things because I'm extremely bad at looking at lists of numbers and and having any understanding about what they mean. Um, in fact, this is one of those one of those. Uh, stereotypes about people who work with with mathematics is that they must be good with numbers. And I'm atrocious with numbers. I don't care for them. Um, but I'm very good with patterns and very good with pictures. And so for me to understand what I'm doing, I have to have a picture. I sort of, there's no alternative for me. And then, you know, it's not, at that level, it's not a deliberate choice of, oh, I think this is the best way. For me, it's the only way. And And when I find that it lines up with the way other people think, then I am just happy. Because there's something in some sense there's there's you know there's nothing to be done about it now that i've I've established that niche i i I sort of work within it but um but that's the origin of it. It's not that it's changed my point of view at all, it's that it comes from my point of view 
Okay, fascinating. I love to hear how different people uh, think about the game and think about how to express it. That's awesome. Ah, that's really cool. Uh, okay, um, so I just have one more question about hockey and stats and stuff in general before we get to the Jets uh, in particular. I have a whole host of questions about them for you. Uh, but first, mm-hmm. uh, I have a question from uh, one of the other Jet-centric uh, hosts here, and they would like to know, how can I become a better fan? What is one stat that I should value more than others? Well, I mean, it's a bit of a loaded question. There are, um, there are lots of, like, I don't like to tell people how they ought to be a fan. The, but, but if you want to, like, if you want to watch the game and say things which make more sense rather than say things which make less sense when you're talking with your friends about hockey, the, I think there's a few sort of easy pickings. Um, one is that is that you have to be careful and aware of just just how much goaltending performances can skew your opinion of specific players, where both not just the goaltenders who play for your team, but also the goaltenders who play for the other teams. And so if you if you have you can have a player who can look very very ordinary when you watch them, but then when you look at them and you say, oh look, well he was on the ice, you know the Jets scored seven times and got scored on only once, and you think, well, that must be great. And that could easily be nothing at all. Uh, it's very surprising. It's very tempting to say, well, everything, every number that you can write down must have a meaning, but plenty of them don't. And so the, the most basic thing I think you can do to improve your understanding of the game is not to take on something new to learn. I mean, although there are lots of interesting things to learn, um, but to, to take some things away and just say, we're not going to pay attention to that at all because it contains no information. And it becomes a bit purer, actually, when you when you start looking at the sport this way. So plus minus is one of those things which you can just jettison off into the wilds of history. And <laughs> and and so there's not a question of learning there. There's only a question of letting stuff go. And so you can make yourself uh, a smarter hockey fan just by doing that. Uh, and so it doesn't have to be like a kind of school project where you sit down with books. And, you know, I know some people are like that. They're really keen to, to learn. And there are definitely options available there. But I think that's a... a a more difficult enterprise and uh and in some sense it's easier just to say well we're going to take these things which we know are worthless and and just let them go cool that makes a lot of sense uh kind of uh uh cut to the chase you know get push through all the the chaff you know get right to the wheat yeah cool right on all right so now uh let's talk about the jets because that's i'm sure what uh, our listeners are most excited about uh, so, from your perspective, uh, what are the Jets this year good at? Well, the, I I really like the power play. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the most obvious thing. The There's a handful of things about the Jets which are not as good this year as in past years. The overall offense is not as good. The overall defense is not as good, although they're both still fine, I think. The, by which I mean the 5-5. Five and five offense and defense. The power play was good last year and it's great this year. Um, I think the, the reason for that is, is fairly obvious and I think everybody knows it, which is that Patrick Laine is a phenomenal, phenomenal shot and, <laughs> and, has the, and the Jets have the kind of power play which lets him take it reasonably often. You know, just like we've seen in Washington, the, in some sense, this is one of those, I mean, part of what made the Washington power play so good and still so good is that you don't you don't need to know what's going to happen. Like it makes no difference if you know it's what's going to happen 
Like if you, there's things that you can do on the power play. You can't do this at five on five, but on the power play, there are just plays that you can execute. Whereas if you can execute them, you just get to score. If you have the personnel who can execute them. And, and so it doesn't matter who game plans for you. It doesn't matter how predictable you are because you just do it and then it works. And so the, the, you need to have that kind of talent who can take that particular right-handed shot from that particular spot. And Ovechkin, of course, can, and Lina can do it from even further. The, and so that, that's the most obvious thing. And so you notice that in the coaching details, too, where you know, if you look at how, the, how the, the different parts of the game have broken down in terms of consistency of players, you see a very, very strong, you know, this is the first unit, this is the second unit on the power play, which makes sense from the Jets' point of view. It's one of the few areas where, where there's probably no need for any improvement whatsoever. They just need to keep on going to that well as long as they can do it. And so that's right. the, the so there's lots of other details, and there's definitely lots of problems. Buffalo's getting a lot older. He's starting to take a lot more penalties. And he's still taking lots of minutes. They definitely miss um, Toby Enstrom for his defensive abilities. The you know there's there's it's not as clear to me that they're going to have the kind of success this year that they did last year. But there are definitely not a lot of huge holes, and there's a fair few very, very strong elements in the power play is, is the top of the list. All right. Fantastic. Uh, uh, just out of curiosity, do you have a particular weakness that you got your eye on with this team? Uh, they take too many penalties. Um, this, is, this is probably the most obvious, the most obvious weakness. The penalties drawn is – um, this year so far is is league average, and that's about what I expect from them. Um, going into the season, I expected them to take fewer penalties. That had been it's been a Jets problem for many years, as you know, mm-hmm. um, of taking too many penalties. And last year wasn't nearly as bad as the year before and the year before that. And I I had thought maybe they had fixed that problem, quote unquote. Um, and this year it's back. They're right up there. There's sort of four or five teams: um, Detroit, Winnipeg, Vancouver, New Jersey. Um, Colorado, who are all taking basically four minors a game. And, I mean, the league, the whole league sits between three and four, basically. You know, three is best in the league, four is worst in the league. That sounds <laughs> like a big deal, right? But but it's only – but still, you know, one one penalty every single game, more than another team, is, is pretty hefty, especially if you're talking about like a seven-game series between those two teams. You know, four to seven power plays extra for the other team, that's that's a lot. You can't be giving that up on a regular basis. And uh, and so the Jets like are going to have real problems there because they need. It's not so much that they. I mean, they really need to draw penalties to to play to their real strengths. But but against any team, if you keep on taking penalties, eventually you'll get burned. So that's an obvious weakness. Okay. The penalty kill itself looks okay. Uh, doesn't look like anything special. Doesn't look like anything terrible. But but again, it's one of those things where. It doesn't really matter how good you are if you keep on putting yourself at a disadvantage. It's going to add up over time. Of course, absolutely. Um, turning to uh, individual performances here, are there any standouts uh, from your perspective on the Jets team this year? I mean, Lina, again, there's there's a lot of people, including me, who I think very reasonably from a statistical point of view looked at some of what he did last year and said, you know, that's that's the kind of of performance that that we've basically never seen repeated. Or, you know, I'm not even sure we ever saw it once before, let alone twice before. Those kinds of, of percentages, that kind of ability to score on almost every shot. And, and of course, he's not putting up points at five on five the same way. The, 
And so in some sense, there's vindication there. But on the power play, he's still he's still um, doing something like that. Um, Wheeler is a bit of a surprise to me. I it doesn't not very fashionable in Winnipeg circles, but I think he's declining, um, and he has not declined nearly as much as I expected, especially with um, with assists and putting up lots and lots and lots of them this year. Um, the overall scoring is a little bit lower than I expected. I'm a little bit surprised at that. Um, but I also expected that um, that Jacob Truba would be a little stronger this year than he's been. Um, he's been in previous years he was very very good and uh, and this year i think he's been only only okay which is a little bit surprising um but most of the jets actually have been have been as i expected apart from those you know Matthew Perot is still still playing incredibly well all over the lineup um you know Ehlers and Connor and 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 a handful of other the forward group i think is one of the best in the league and they're still is still showing that where almost every combination of forwards is is controlling play. Yeah, uh, speaking of controlling play, uh, I, I've seen you tweet before about uh, the Lowry line with like Cop Lowry and Tanis. Um Would you be willing to comment on their effectiveness, how they achieve their kind of dominance of controlling shots? Well, precisely how they do it, I'm I'm not completely sure. The and and I've watched a fair bit of of hockey, and I couldn't pin my put my finger on one spot precisely uh, statistically it looks like Tanev is the weakest of the three um, but which is not to say that there's anything particularly wrong with him in my mind but the other two defensively are very very good and and that and you see that um, not necessarily by specific plays that they make in their defensive zone one of the things that makes really good defensive players extremely good is that they don't let the puck get into their own defensive zone at all don't let the goalie have to have to even make a save. And so the best place to play defense, which they do it a fair bit of, is uh, at the opponent's blue line, not at your own blue line. So you can have like a defense in depth. And so if you can stop the puck off, if you can stop the breakouts in other people's zones, that, that doesn't really count as offense because you don't have the puck and you're not really threatening to score. And they don't score very much. But if you can, but if you can stymie breakouts and and turn what look like outlet passes into puck battles, you know, that's a great way to play defense, even if your goalie never even sees anything but your numbers from a distance. And so that's part of what makes them so good defensively is, is their ability to keep the puck out of their zone completely. All right. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I have one final question that uh, is uh, one that's near and dear to my heart, but uh, if you had the opportunity to optimize the Jets lineup, uh, what sort of changes might you make? Uh, I would call up a handful of younger players. Um, I, th- I think the Jets all have a number of players who are already good enough to to be playing regular minutes. Um, Kaminiku is one obvious example. Uh, I think I think you could replace Joe Mora, for instance, with him, and you would get an immediate boost. Uh, I think not only, I mean, it's obvious that Niku's going to be better in the future, um, but I think he's better now. Um, I think this is a kind of general property of mine and also a handful of other, a handful of other kind of nerdy people in, in spirit is, <laughs> is if you have, if you have young players, the sort of uh, guiding assumption that a lot of established hockey people seem to have is that, is that young players are you know even if they have what appears to be a lot of flashes that you should just assume that they're bad because young players are 
are are always bad unless they learn the things that they need to learn to to become part of the group. And so veterans are are safer somehow. And I think that in some sense that's the young players who are actually safer than the older players. The older players have have lots of weaknesses and we know that they're really bad in the ways that we know. And and there's generally what strengths that they have, we also know what those are. So Moro is a great example. Um he's not a, like I mean he's not like a Colton Moore style dreadful player, but but there's really nothing particularly redeeming about the way that he plays. And so that certainty, how certain you are about how good he's not, is something that you don't have about Niku. It's possible that he might be dreadful. You know, we don't really have the kind of full amount of data, certainly not NHL data, on Niku that would make us be sure about that. But but the uncertainty about his abilities really ought to be in his favor when you compare him to older players about whom we are completely certain that they are not as good as we hope Niku will be. And so I think if you take that mentality, you ought to be playing younger players over surer veteran players much more often. And you will be wrong from time to time, and you'll, and you'll place a handful of people who will be dreadful, and you'll have to say, well, that was a mistake. Uh, you know, but then you'll know because you've played them. And I think the damage there that you, that you incur when you, when you make those decisions is less than the damage to your team where you say, well, we know this guy's not great, but we're still going to roll him out for 12 minutes a night at least and maybe more you know, night after night after night because we consider him safe. You know, it just means that the things that you won't be surprised by the mistakes that he makes because you know all about them, but but those, and also you won't be surprised by the plays that he doesn't make because you know he doesn't have the skill to make them. So that, that harm there is more insipid. It kind of lurks in behind you when you're not paying attention. The And so the the way that it comes out is, is I, I think if you fix it, is by playing younger players over older players more often, um, even though they won't always be better. They'll just be better enough of the time to make it a good strategy overall. Well, uh, as much as I feel some personal validation, I've been beating that drum myself for for a long time. Uh, I'm curious, do you think uh, it's just a matter that coaches are stuck in the better the devil you know than one you don't kind of mentality? I, I'm not completely sure. I think that's definitely part of it. Um, I think also coaches are, are unusually unusually risk-averse in a, a number of different ways. And the most obvious one is that coaches will prefer somebody who does nothing flashy and makes no mistakes to somebody who does two flashy good things and makes one mistake. And And you really, I think if you take a quantitative point of view, it's very hard to think like that because you say, well, plus two minus one, that's good. Right. This very. Mm. Whereas, in some sense, it's a coach's job, though, to the way that coaches view themselves is to say, well, it's my job, especially for young players, is to take away those negatives. And so, so playing a player who has no negatives but also no positives is is an easy sell because it feels like you're doing your job. So I think that's that's part of it, um, and I think also you need you need a lot of of courage in an institutional sense to be able to make those decisions. A lot of coaches might prefer to make those decisions, you know, but they know that if, that if things go wrong, and especially if you're, if you're going to deal with more variants, if things happen to all go wrong in one direction over the course of a few weeks, you might easily be fired. The, whereas making the safe choice is much less likely to cost you your job. And so I think in some sense, it's, there's a rational aspect to that. So you'd need to have a, a general manager 
who you trusted and, and who was telling you, you know, it's okay to make these decisions. And of course you also have to have to optimize team control over players to make sure that you don't run afoul of salary cap problems and all those multi-year management problems, which coaches don't really want to think about. And so, but have to in some sense, because they're on a, on a team and all these people have, have conflicting incentives. Cool. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. You mentioned the, having a GM who's encouraging the, the younger players and things. I do feel like that's something that the Jets have had over previous years to a certain extent. But I wonder if maybe now that they, they've got that glimmer of success, they're maybe trying to, to tighten up the ship a little bit. These things go back and forth constantly for every team in the league. You know, every every team thinks their prospects are great, and every team thinks every coach thinks that the veterans that they do play all the time, you know, they're the safe ones, they're the good ones, not like other people. And so the you can definitely get into into blind spots of particular types. But but I'm I'm optimistic actually. I, I think I've seen a lot from the Jets in the last handful of years and that progression that suggests that they're that they're going to be able to to ride out some storms like that. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Micah. Um, before we go, uh, I'd like to give you a chance to plug uh, some of your own projects, some of your own ways people can reach you. Sure. The if you, uh, I mean, if you like looking at visualizations for hockey, um, you'll find my website, which is hockeyviz.com, v-i-z.com, um, absolutely full of them. The most of them with explanations. Although I flatter myself in telling myself that some of them should be more or less self-explanatory, um, the, some of the website is free that I just give away to anybody who wants. Some of the website uh, is protected by a paywall, where if you subscribe, um, and there are links, of course, on the website which show you exactly how you can subscribe five or ten dollars a month, and so you get access to some fancy stuff or lots and lots of fancy stuff. Uh, and I'm pleased to have enough subscribers now, only just, um, that it's my primary source of income. And that's how I make my living is by by giving people hockey stuff, uh, which is really extremely satisfying, actually. And and so being able to turn what used to be a hobby into a full-time job of mine is has been a great pleasure. And so if you want to participate with that, I obviously uh, will not discourage you in any way. The and uh, but of course you can also find me on Twitter at uh, ineffective math is a joke about how I used to be a research mathematician, but I couldn't get a full-time math job and had to pivot to something where it's easier to make money like hockey. <laughs> right. Uh, I know that feeling coming out of academia and not having any kind of prospect of job. Uh, so, well, again, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, you have a, a Patreon account that's linked to your, your website. Is that, is that correct? That's right. If you, if you, uh, if you go to hockeyviz.com and you click on enough interesting things, uh, without too much fuss, you will find links to the Patreon, uh, and I will be, or they will be glad to take your money on my behalf. <laughs> okay, fantastic. I do hope some of our listeners will take you up on that. And uh, personally, I've got a, a bit of a motion afoot to try to get a jet-centric uh, donation going. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'll see if I can <laughs> scrape up some money. We're all dead broke, I'm afraid, but you know. <laughs> well, I know the feeling. Yeah, of course. Well, anyway, again, thank you so much to Michael McCurdy for joining us uh, with the Jet Centric Podcast, and uh, we'll catch you next time.